Coming up on Something is About to Happen. What is the purpose of the law? The law is good, it is righteous, it is perfect, it is holy. But it has no power to make you good, righteous, perfect or holy. The purpose of the law is like a mirror where it shows you your flaws, your warts, your, your challenges. It's a diagnostic system. And it brings you to a place of severe desperation when you realize that I am damned, I am doomed, I am condemned with Adam. I, I need a savior. The first thing I want to say to you this morning is that God wants you to reign in life. Meaning that he wants you to have victory over sin, over sickness, over hellish circumstances. He wants you to have victory over the pit, even though he allowed you to go into the pit. He wants you to have victory over the chains, even though he allowed you to go into chains. He wants you to have victory over things you may have become slave to or persons you may have become slave to, even though he allowed you to go in there because in the enemy's wickedness, he allowed it and even facilitated it so that his grace would have an opportunity to shine in the midst of your challenges. So that the challenges evidence the fact that God's grace is so super abundant to you that it's over and above the challenges that he allows to come to you. In fact, he then uses the challenges as platforms, as stepping stones to launch you into his purpose so that when people look at who you were and how forsaken you were and how written off you were, they can say, truly, this was not the doing of a man. This is the doing of the Lord and it is marvelously gracious in our eyes. He wants you to reign in life. And so when challenges hit you and trouble comes in your direction, do not think that it's a sign of the absence of God's grace. Those who are powerfully and super abundantly predestined for greatness are often the same ones who are opened up by God to face deep and dreary challenges. I want to say to you categorically that yes, God wants you to reign in life, but before you can reign in life, you have to first be in a place of no condemnation. You cannot reign in life if you live in a place of condemnation. No condemnation is a prerequisite for reigning in life. In fact, people often misdefine grace and say that grace is empowerment. It's not. It produces empowerment. And grace starts with God becoming a man, living out perfectly all the implication of the law and fulfilling it to the jot and the tittle, and then going in that perfection to the cross and dying your death, not his. Taking your shame, not his. Taking your pain, your penalty, not his. So that you wouldn't have to take it. So that condemnation that belonged to you he took it from you and took its pain on his body. And it was severe. And I say this because when I talk about condemnation, I want you to understand that it's at the root of everything evil, including death. And death does not start with you breathing your last breath. It ends with you breathing your last breath, physically. It ends with you being separated from God, spiritually. But it doesn't start there. It starts with condemnation. All sickness is rooted in condemnation. And if you don't deal with condemnation, uh, you will miss out on the abundance of God's grace and the gift of righteousness. So stress is dangerous and it kills. But condemnation is worse than stress and it is deadly. 
And I say to you that yes, you have problems. So do I. We all do in this world. Your life's problems are not the root of your stress. Your life problems are the fruit of your stress, but the root produces the tree which produces the fruit. So what is the root? Condemnation is the root of all stress. <laughs> and believers can unwittingly face condemnation if they do not believe correctly and completely. Did you know that up to 70 to 80% according to one, one uh, study of all sicknesses are caused by underlying stress. Stress is rooted in fear. In other words, stress comes from, from something called fear. The fear of failure, the fear of disgrace, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of not enough, the fear of death, and everybody will have to deal with that fear. The fear of defeat, the fear of peril, the fear of loss, loss of anything important or precious to you, the fear of less, the fear of, of losing in a court case upon all your enterprise hangs on, the fear of being jilted or jolted, the fear of being divorced, the fear of being sacked, the fear of losing important relationships. And science has detected and diagnosed this reality that stress is rooted in fear. Hallelujah. But, but that's as far as medical science can go because uh, medical science cannot diagnose or treat something that is not natural. Because uh, condemnation is spiritual. Science cannot diagnose or treat or defeat the root of all that causes stress and fear because what causes stress and fear is spiritual. It's called condemnation. It's the deepest root of all. And condemnation causes fear. Look at the sequence. Fear causes stress. And that's a manifestation of the curse. Stress causes dis-ease, which brings about disease. And disease causes degeneration and makes more stress compounded upon the human mind, soul, and body. And that stress eventually manifests as death. But death started as a root. It ends with breathlessness and separation from God. Before there was poverty, before there was sickness or death, in Adam's life, there was first stress. Before there was stress in Adam's life, there was first fear. Before there was fear in Adam's life, there was first condemnation. Look with me at Genesis 3 and verse 19. And the word for stress there is sweat. In the sweat of your face. Because he didn't sweat before the curse or the sentence or the condemnation came. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. I won't deny you bread, but to get bread, you're going to have to go through some stress. Until thou return unto the ground. That's your portion. Adam, thank God we're not in Adam. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. By the way, that's what Satan eats, dust. That's why you have stress. That's why the Adamic has stress. Hallelujah. God called for Adam in Genesis 3 and verse 10. This is after the fall. And he called unto Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Not that he didn't know where he was. He wanted Adam to know where Adam was. And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's in verse 10. 
Why did he hide himself? Because he felt condemned. Because God had prophesied to him beforehand that in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you will surely die. And immediately Adam died spiritually with his wife Eve. That meant that death is not cessation, it is separation. And immediately the glory of God, the presence of God was separated from them. And because God is our natural clothing, we are hidden Christ in God, he's our apparel. The clothing for man was not fabric, it was always God. And once the glory was separated from him, he felt condemned. At that point he died, he felt like a dead corpse feels. No life, no inherent life. And that was the only life he knew. No creator life. But he still existed. Created life. And why did he feel condemned? Because God had earlier given a conditional prophecy that the day you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. This condemnation came from a God who cannot lie. Therefore, once he said it, his word had to be obedient to his power. And Adam immediately died. His physicality did not die immediately because there was so much life infused that it will project him for 930 years. He's among the longest lived men in, in the first five. The law condemns. The law, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, gives us the knowledge of good and evil, comparatively. Yeah, that's how it does. So, so let's look at the New Testament and what the New Testament says about the law. In Romans 3, verse 20, the B clause. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Adam did not know sin before he ate of the tree. It was the eating of the tree that brought him into the knowledge of good and evil. All he knew was good and glory. Now he's brought to the knowledge of sin. Hallelujah. So the tree there represents the law. God always teaches before he teaches. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56. The strength of sin is the law. There would be no sin if there was no law. Paul says in the New Living Translation, Romans 7, 7, in the New Living Translation, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So the law shows us our flaws, our faults in nature and in commission. God did not give the law for any man to live by. That's not the purpose of the law. And I am for the law for what it is supposed to be used for. Glory to God. Please understand that. That's important. I'm not against the law. And people who teach the message of Christ correctly cannot be against the law. We are for the law, but only for what the law was purposed for. And we just read you three scriptures citing what the purpose of the law is for. What is the purpose of the law? The law is good, it is righteous, it is perfect, it is holy. But it has no power to make you good, righteous, perfect, or holy. The purpose of the law is like a mirror where it shows you your flaws, your warts, your, your challenges. It's a diagnostic system. And it brings you to a place of severe desperation when you realize that I am damned, I am doomed, I am condemned with Adam. I, I need a savior. Hallelujah. And this is why 
God in Christ condemned the fig tree. You know why? The fig tree is like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a picture of the Lord. That's what Adam tried to cover himself with. Yeah? And when he saw it not bringing forth any fruit, and it shouldn't have brought forth fruit because it was not in season. And he had indignant anger against it. And walked up and said, die. And his boys saw it. The next morning, it was dead. And what happened? I'll tell you what happened. He was upset that it was posing as an imposter, pretending to be redemptive. Because nothing can cover the doom of Adam in us other than Jesus Christ, the tree of life himself. So, why was the law given? He tells us in Romans 8 verse 3. King James says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, couldn't redeem you, couldn't save you, couldn't justify you, couldn't perfect you. God now sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin. That means he condemned law as a weapon against you. Condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So the law was weak because of the flesh and it could not do what Christ came to do by condemning sin and its premise in his own body. So God gave the law to show us our sin nature and our sins and thereby realize, we would realize our desperate need for the Savior. So the law brings about the knowledge of your sin and the knowledge of your sin causes you to feel condemned. Because the law is a code, it's a penal code, and when you violate the law, you will feel condemned. So where there is no law, there is no problem. But once there is law, there is a problem. And God would rather that you are not obedient to a code, but by nature you fulfill the code. So instead of giving you an outward code on stone or on paper, he put his own nature inside of you. And thereby first forgave all your sins to condemnation out of the way and then installed himself in you as nature so that godliness is meant to come naturally to you. That's what he meant when he said, I will write my law on your heart and I will put Christ in your heart. Let me say to you that the law is a murderer. It's an assassin. The Bible says so, that it is an administrator of death. And in order to administrate righteousness, the law makes a very shabby administrator. The best administrator of righteousness is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the person who can administrate righteousness in your life. He understands how to do it. He can dig it. Glory to God. Let me ask you this question. What is the key to no more condemnation in your life? What is the key to no condemnation? He took away that stony heart of stubbornness and he planted a tender heart. Word used there is of flesh. It means soft, pliable, malleable, um, of responsiveness to the Almighty God. Let me say this to you very boldly this morning. The only place where there is no condemnation is where? In Christ. Anywhere else is sinking sand. 
Christ Jesus was condemned instead of us. He took all the condemnation that belonged to you upon himself and died your death on the cross of Calvary. He took your place there and when it was done, still being alive, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It simply means to believe in his incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection as the basis of your salvation and redemption uh, so that simply put, we must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the basis for him becoming our savior through a perfect life, uh, a damning death, uh, which he broke and treated like a little burnt oak uh, and came out from under its claw and grip to show us uh, that even though it is an enemy, Christ is greater than the worst enemy from hell. Even though it is damning, he has power over it all, not only for himself, uh, but also for you. So who are those qualified for this gift of no condemnation? Who are those? It is those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are those in Christ Jesus? Those who have believed on his redemptive death, burial, and resurrection, and subsequent ascension to far above all glory in the heavens. Now, when you believe in Christ and put your faith in him, God the Father from that point sees you in Christ Jesus and he sees you in the risen Christ. What does this mean to us? It simply means this. He sees you exactly as he sees Christ. Ask a neighbor, do you know that God sees you exactly the same way that he sees Christ? The Father who still retains all authority but has delegated it completely to his son. He sees you just like he sees Christ and therefore he treats you just as he treats Christ. I want to ask you a question. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? The secret to your success, the potential for your future hangs on that one reality. Can you believe that? Difficult if you have condemnation. So that no matter how or what the premise is for your condemnation, you must deny that condemnation. Not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of his death, burial and resurrection. And thereafter, you take it like this. He sees me the way he sees Christ. How does the Father see Christ? That's what you spend your life doing. Time to get a revelation of how the Father sees the Son. Because that is how he sees you when you are in him. And you are always in him from the moment you first believed correctly. So what does the Father say? John the Apostle makes it clear. 1 John chapter 4 verse 17, God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, that is as recipients of a love that flows through you like a river, flows to you and then through you, what do you have? We live in God and God lives in us. The way love has the run, the ownership of the house, and it becomes at home and mature in us so that we are free of worry, anxiety, stress, fear on judgment day. Our, our standing in the world is identical with Christ. There's no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Let me tell you, some of you have enemies. Don't fight your enemies with anything but this. There's no, no place to stand, no bastion, no bulwark, no fortress to stand against the vilest enemies other than this. Because your enemies will most and generally be stronger than you, but they cannot be stronger than the Christ in you and the Christ that you are in.
since fear is crippling, a fearful life, the fear of death, the fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. So if you have fear, love has not grown. What do I mean by love? The love of God towards you and your conviction that he loves you in spite of you. I have a big question. I mean huge. Can the risen Christ who is at the Father's right hand after death and burial and resurrection can he be condemned again? Honest question. Can I ask it again? Can the risen Christ who's at the Father's right hand ever be condemned again? Then if he cannot be condemned again, I want to ask you a question. Can you, who is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in Christ, the uncondemnable one, can you ever be condemned again? So I want to ask you a question. Why do you feel condemned when things go wrong in your life? And yes, you ought to for a second. But after that, you have to accept that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in. You are accepted in the beloved. What's the beloved's name? Christ. If any man beware, in Christ, all things have passed away. All nature has passed away. And take a good look. All things have become new. You have a new nature. God is for you living a lifestyle of no sin. He's for you living a lifestyle that reigns over sin. But you cannot do it in your own obedience. Your own obedience is hopeless. It will take you up some days and you'll feel good, but it will bring you down. Because every time you operate in your own obedience, it's a license for the enemy to test you on another level. There's no new tactic in the enemy's arsenal. So he knows you. And if you try to beat him on your own obedience, you will miss it. <laughs> You're talking to a veteran. <laughs> so he's for you, God is for you, reigning in life and living a lifestyle of no sin. He's for you, reigning over sin, for you, reigning over sickness. He's for you reigning over anxiety, reigning over fear and stress, reigning over dis-ease and disease. God is for you reigning in wisdom. He's for you reigning in majesty, in authority, in power and in glory. He's for you reigning in faith. But the power to do this comes when you first receive the gift of no condemnation. You cannot put any of the other gifts before this. This is the first gift. No condemnation. The law of double jeopardy that you cannot be executed or condemned for the same crime twice. And once God accepted Jesus Christ as the bona fide substitute by identity, he looked exactly like you in God's eyes. And died in your place and took your condemnation on his own body, then his condemnation has released you from the law of sin and death. Because your sins cannot be condemned in the body of your substitute and then condemned in your own body thereafter. It's not allowed in law. Look at Romans 8, verse 2 and 3. Romans 8, verse 2 and 3. For the law of the Spirit of life lived in Christ Jesus. And you don't do that. He did that for you. 
He put you inside him. So you live inside him whether you realize it or not. That's why your life changed once you were deposited inside Christ at salvation. So the law of the spirit of life style in Christ has made you free from another law. The law of sin and death. Verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin when he allowed Christ to be condemned. But because Christ had no sin, condemnation could not last longer than Christ wanted it to last. If he wanted it to last a second, it would have lasted a second. But he needed three days because he had established a pattern of three throughout the annals of the canon old and he was the canon new. You understand? And, and so he made it three days. So condemning sin and its law in his flesh, he took the law out of the way and made it impossible for hell to condemn you. You can't condemn yourself. If you choose to, you can because you are, you are governor of your own life. What is grace? There are many good definitions. I will use only two uh, because of their contextual appropriateness to my intent this morning. First one, the amplified version of the Bible, anywhere it sees grace in the scriptures, it will put in brackets unmerited favor. Why? Because grace is not something you can earn. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. He reserved it for you. But the only thing that helps you to take it is faith. And what is faith? Faith is hearing about this grace. A second definition is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Acronym. God's riches at your expense? No. With your contribution? No. With your input? No. Even the faith that you used to take the grace, he gave it to you. So my, my entire thought captivity is not about my own obedience. It's about Christ's obedience and what that obedience has done for me and is doing in me. So that my whole life becomes conscious of his righteousness as my possession, as my totality. So, if a believer is not reigning, it is for one simple pair of reasons. That he or she has not received, and I'm going to clear that up in a minute, the abundance or superabundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Now, let me say this to you. When you believed and you came to an altar, God made an altar for you in your car or your home, and you gave your life, or rather you believed upon Christ's death, burial, and redemptive resurrection, yeah? you received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. But if as a believer... You are not reigning in life. It is because your consciousness of having received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness is no longer conscious of those two realities. Why would it not be conscious? Because of the constant bombardment from the enemy, from hell, from this world and its life, you lose your consciousness of the abundance of grace available to you and the free gift of right standing before God. And you start believing a lie. And I don't care how philosophically academic you are. 
in matters pertaining to Christology or divinity, if you do not simply learn how to fuel your consciousness with righteousness consciousness instead of sin consciousness, you will not reign in life. For he tells us, Romans 5, 17, that by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance. I want to highlight that word receive. And I want you to know that that word receive is in present active participle, which means it is present and forever continuous. That means you don't only receive the gift of righteousness once. That first receipt is enough for your total salvation. So if a believer is not reigning in life, it is because they are not receiving into active consciousness these two gifts. Which two gifts? The first gift is super abundant grace. The second gift is the free gift of righteousness. Uh, let's deal with what righteousness is first. Righteousness is the ability, the wherewithal is a better word, to stand blameless, faultless before the Almighty God, having the same nature as Him. Righteousness now furnishes you with unmerited rights. So that what you did not have rights to, because you are righteous with him, you have everything he has. You are an heir of God and a conjoined ear with Christ. For everything that you could not work for, but he works in you. It's not a reward for your effort. It's not a gift for your performance. It's nothing that you could have earned or have earned. That's important to underscore. Hallelujah. So, Adam's downfall caused all men to be born fallen. Yeah. And, and what I'm trying to get you to do is to not believe in your own obedience as the basis for receiving from God. So, what we're trying to get you to understand is that you must continue to fuel your consciousness, your mentality, your psychology, your thinking processes and thoughts with a consciousness that I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. And therefore, I'm not under the condemnation to death and death is a real enemy. And when Adam fell, it broke God's heart when himself and his wife, Adam and Eve, fell because they died immediately as it concerns the spiritual dimension of their life. Meaning that they would eventually also die physically and Adam's offense brought pervasive death transgenerationally to all humanity. That's why the earth is not like heaven. Adam's offense brought such pervasive death to the world. And I want to ask you, who brought death into humanity? It was the first man, Adam. Does it not follow that if you are going to take that death away from humanity, it would take one man? Because Adam failed in his role of providing God with a generation, a race of beings that would be exactly like God. When he fell down, he spread his disease. So another man had to come. And that man had to be God because nobody else could do it. And uh, until he came, death reigned by providing condemnation, resulting in fear, resulting in stress, anxiety, torment, dis-ease, disease, degeneration, and ultimately death. And all of these things I've just listed are the judgment you see in Genesis 2 verse 17, which was a prophetic sentence of 
condemnation uh, to death that was conditional. So Adam had not yet committed the sin, but God said, if you do this, this is what will happen. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. It was prophetic from a God who cannot lie. And once he ate of it, he immediately died. The moment they fulfilled the condition, they lapsed. First spiritually, then psychologically, then physically. And all humanity as a result was born into condemnation. Uh, That's why Christ came. So that through his righteousness at the cross, Romans 5.18, you would have restoration to a state of Adam better than before the fall. Therefore, as by the offense of one man, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto righteousness of life. Justification of life. Do you get it? So you now can look at verse 17b of chapter 5. And he says, much more, those who receive two things shall reign in life through one Jesus Christ by his obedience to become the sacrifice. Not by your obedience, his obedience. It is not an excuse for you to be disobedient. The only obedience required of you is to have faith in his obedience. And that obedience will begin to work in you till Christ be formed in you as your natural lifestyle. Hallelujah. So what he tells us is that those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, that, that literally means those who take, that's what receive there means. Those who take the abundance of grace that is given to them and the free gift of righteousness, they will reign in life. Now, this is not for every Tom, Dick and Harry. This is for those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Just because you call yourself Christian and have a title in church does not mean that you are a receiver of the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It is a once and for all gift, but it requires a forever perpetual consciousness for you to walk in what you have been given. If my father gave me a Ferrari and I don't take the keys to drive it, I don't have the Ferrari. It's mine by ownership right and by title, but I haven't walked in my entitlement. So if he's given you the abundance of grace and you're not walking in it, friend, you may have it, but you ain't using it. And instead, the enemy is able to rob you of what is yours because you have not retained it in your consciousness. Paul said, I fought a good fight. I kept what? The faith. Not my faith, the faith. What is the faith? The gospel according to Christ. The gospel of Christ's work. Hallelujah. And what's the result of that? You will receive and receive and receive the abundance of grace, never based on your performance. It's not a reward to you. Uh, and, and you continue to walk in, in a complete and comprehensive, correct sense of I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And the result of that, my friends, is that you will reign in life. Unless there are those who receive in continuum. Hallelujah. So what are those two things? Number one, the superabundance of grace. And number two, the gift of righteousness. So let's unpack this term, those who receive. Let's unpack it. Now, how do I receive? How do I keep receiving? Because I got it when I was born again. And I have it. It's mine. But am I walking in what I have? Am I walking in Christ Jesus? So I'm in him, but am I walking in him? Or do I just ignore his presence in my life as I go about my daily business? 
So what does receive mean? It means constantly confessing and speaking out loud what I originally believed as I also grew in the knowledge and understanding and the wisdom of that correct belief. Yeah? And Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing. That's continuum. The message of Christ. Yeah? So I've got to keep hearing it. Now, if the preacher's not there, how am I going to keep hearing it? I must confess it myself. You, you understand? I must keep confessing it so I keep hearing it. This is the secret to reigning over sickness and sin, trouble and wahala. This is the secret to reigning over your pit when they throw you in it, to reigning over your chains when they enslave you, to reigning in Potiphar's house when they sell you to him, to reigning against false accusation, to reigning when you are falsely incarcerated, to reigning when you are in a dungeon for something you didn't do, for reigning when you eventually come to the palace. So that Joseph had what we call abundant favor. Listen, God allowed hell to work through people in his life to do him untold evil. They threw him in a pit, planning to kill him. But he rose above it. Why? He was favored. The favor that allowed him to have trouble was the favor that allowed him to have victory over the trouble. So that what his brothers meant for evil was God's vehicular purpose to send him into the vicinity of his destiny. Do you get it? Favor programmed his brothers to be helpers in his destiny direction. That's what Favor does. When it was time to kill him, Favor came on Joseph as God's spirit worked in Judah and Reuben to navigate and facilitate his deliverance from death. So they couldn't kill him. Instead, they sold him and they sold him to Abraham's mistake, Favor. So that the Midianites who sold him to Ishmael, both descendants of, of, of Abraham, now took him to Egypt. They could have taken him anywhere else. But they took him to the most powerful land in the world and to its capital. And brought him to the general area of where the Pharaoh lived. And the right man said, I like this guy. And he bought him. He bought him. Favor. God orders the footsteps of the righteous. Hallelujah. That same favor that put him in trouble took him out of trouble. Any favor that, any trouble that favor puts you in, favor will bring you out of. And that means I want you to recognize that favor also brings trouble. But because you are favored, there's nothing called trouble in your life. It's just camouflage. And because of favor, you won't feel the pain whilst you're going through it. You still have the draw of the Lord to anesthetize your pain. He enters into part of his house, favor takes him from the bottom to the top. Now, when you are a slave, all you have is a loincloth, no bank account, no, you own nothing. You are owned. Yet, he rose till he was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. That Potiphar did not know what he had except what Joseph told him. And the Bible says, God so favored Joseph that he blessed Potiphar's house because of Joseph. I hope you're getting it. Favor. Say, Father, I thank you for unmerited favor. Joseph did nothing to earn all of this. Whilst he was in there, he rose to the top that he became the most favored man by God in that house. In other words, he was the ruler of the house. He just deferred in ceremony and respect to the owner of the house. 
Even the wife of the owner recognized it. That for two years, she begged him to sleep with her. But grace also makes you behave responsibly. Because you never want to lose that grace. And if you've ever lost it before or lost consciousness of it because of condemnation, you begin to appreciate it better if you remain in grace. You understand what I'm saying? And she took him by the coat and said, I'm going to have you today. He left his coat behind. He left what adorned him. He left what appareled him. He left it because he had outgrown it. Favor was taking him somewhere else. She accused him and he could have stood up to say, no, I never did anything like that. But because of grace, he saved his master's marriage. And went to hell for his master. Is that not the picture of Christ? He didn't say, master, this is your yeah, yeah wife. For two years, he didn't do that. He went to jail for their marriage. But it was really for a divine purpose. And when he got to the jail, he went in as a slave. But he rose to the top where the chief one said, do my job. And he didn't become bitter. Grace made him better. And the reason why he went there was because God was going to give the Pharaoh some problems. Because governing a nation that was in abundance, that was soon going to come into disaster, was a challenge. And his servants acted out of character. That was grace at work. God just withdrew some grace from them, put it on Joseph. And the king sent two of them to the same prison as Joseph. One of them would be a facilitator of Joseph's destiny. And Joseph was closer to destiny in prison than he was in Potiphar's house. If he was not falsely accused, he might not have met the person who would take him to the palace. But Pharaoh now has a problem. He has a dream that he doesn't understand and none of his sorcerers, marabouts or wise men could interpret the dream. And that time was so opportune because it was when the butler remembered after two years that there's a guy who can interpret dreams. I met him, he interpreted my dream and because of that I'm out. And they sent for Joseph, walked him up into the palace in a matter of less than an hour, favor took him from a jailbird and made him the most powerful executive in the world. Favor. But what was his pathway? Trouble. But, you know, favor has no respect for trouble. It will reign over trouble. See? If you sin, you actually remain the righteousness of God in Christ. Oh, problem. So you fall down. Are you still the righteousness of God in Christ? The devil will never agree with you on that. And the devil's children will never agree with you on that. And many believers who believe wrongly can never agree with you on that. That's why you cannot rely on what people say. Let every man be a liar. Let what God's word has correctly said in proper context rule in your life and let him alone be true. You must continue to fuel your life and its consciousness with the fact that you are righteous forever, Daniel 9.24. Nothing can take it away from you. And whilst you have it, at least use it on earth. Have some heaven on earth. Don't wait till you get there. You already have eternal life. Glory to God. So you must be continually conscious of your righteousness in Christ. Why? Because every 
every day you are going to be bombarded by things that say otherwise. Your faults, your failures, your, your people's perception of your faults and failures. So every day and always, all the time, confess your righteousness. Romans 10.10. 10. With the heart man believes unto salvation. With the mouth profession is made unto soteria. That's not just eternal salvation. That's total salvation. Sozo. Hallelujah. So keep on confessing that you are the righteousness of God and keep on hearing and hearing according to Christ's message that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Paul said there that God made one who knew no sin become sin for us so that through his condemnation you would be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So one man through his offense made you unrighteous. Another man who happened to be God came and through his righteous deed, his obedience, he made you the righteousness of God in Christ. And being in the form of our frame, open by that nature to the propensity for sin, but yet he sinned not. Tested on all three points. On all points as we are. Lost of the eyes, lost of the flesh, pride of life. Yet he committed no sin. Till the last. Till the last breath. And in that perfection to which the law aspired. And also aspired to create in you but it was weak through the flesh. Taking a perfect life to the cross. Fully identified with your sin. And labeled by God as the object of his wrath, his furious wrath. All of God's judgmental wrath was vented upon Christ till it was exhausted. That's why he said it is finished. That means there remains no condemnation for those who identify with Christ as the basis of their salvation. Yeah, it was finished. And that doesn't mean only sin, it means sickness, sorrow, stress, anxiety. You know, stop using it to deal with only sin, it must be everything. That is in the root called condemnation. You have super abundant grace. But let's look now at the righteousness of God in Christ. If the righteousness of God in Christ is a function of you constantly taking or constantly receiving what grace has freely given to you on the basis of no condemnation, you now have these two gifts. It, it follows then that Romans 5 verse 1, I am justified by faith, that is I am righteous, made into right standing by faith, and I have blamelessness or peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Romans 5 1. Proverbs 12 verse 7, the wicked meet their downfall and leave no descendants, but the families of the righteous live on, your generations will live forever, <laughs> hallelujah. Proverbs 10 and verse 30. The righteous shall never be removed. What righteous? The ones who became righteous by their own performance? No. Those who received the gift of righteousness. But the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. They will inhabit somewhere called hell. Proverbs 28 verse 1. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. But the righteous. You see, they are bold courageous audacious like a lion 
Was David a failed man or not? He had failure in his life. That means he had plenty of reason for condemnation. But David knew the New Testament. Anybody who would have the Ark of the Covenant with no veil, they understood the gospel of grace. He was with Abraham in that matter. He didn't have to wait for Christ to be incarnate for him to get grace. He knew the new covenant. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make your enemies your food. So that's New Testament, complete New Testament. Yeah? Yet David had all this going on, but David was the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why when he was rebuked, privately, he took it. Where are you going to put your confidence? Let's take sin off the page. Where are you going to get your confidence when sickness comes and a doctor in your 50s or 60s tells you something sinister is happening in your body? Are you going to rely on the doctor even though you will use him? When you can't pay your bills, is salvation the cover for insufficiency? Of course it is. When you start stressing at night because of fears and stress starts producing all kinds of emotions and psychology in your brain that makes your body come diseased and then degenerative and then diseased, what are you going to rely on? This is not a matter of sin. It's a matter of condemnation because of an original sin. And if you lapse back into that system, of law, then you have not allowed the fact that you have been made free from that law by the law of lifestyle in Christ's obedience, not yours. You haven't allowed it to work in you, the life of God and all its many benefits. I hope you get it.